0: Truly,
1: we're in a race
0: to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value.
1: Race to value listeners, this week we have Travis B. Turner, Senior Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer for Mary Washington Health Alliance, the ACO, which is a part of Mary Washington Healthcare. And Travis is also the COO of Mary Washington Medicare Advantage Plan. Travis is an experienced Senior Vice President leading in this race to value with years of experience in value based contracting, both on the commercial and governmental side and has led successful performance year after year with Mary Washington Health Alliance. Dan, I am so excited to have Travis this week and I thought the interview was exceptional.
0: I totally agree, Eric. It was, uh, it was really fun listening to Travis as he explained the things that they're doing and their philosophy. You know, Mary Washington Health Alliance is a physician-led, physician-governed, clinically integrated network. It was founded in about in 2013 and has 437 participants that cover about 60,000 lives throughout the Rappahannock region of Virginia, right between Richmond and Washington, DC. So the ACO, Eric, now participates in the Next Gen ACO model. They're moving into uh, advanced MSSP track. They're also active in BPCI advanced and they're doing so many great things for their patients. It's just, as you said, a great conversation.
1: Well, let's hear from Travis as he joins us in today's Race to Value. Well, hey, Travis, welcome to Race to Value. It's great to have you this week.
2: No, great to be here. Thank you so much, Eric. Well,
1: I thought a great place to start, Travis, would be just to get a little bit of background on Mary Washington Health Alliance. It really seems like we have this inflection point happening right now in the industry as it pertains to value. I mean, large employers are reeling from high healthcare costs. Doctors themselves are being crushed by the current environment, realizing that fee for service is actually risky in the middle of a pandemic. You have obviously federal and state governments really feeling insurmountable levels of pressure fiscally. And healthcare executives are really thinking about if they're not leading with the strategy in health value, they're at significant risk. And it's going to be difficult for health systems to adapt, particularly if they're ignoring both the numerator and denominator of the value equation which basically comes down to, you know, are you focusing on quality? Are you focusing on lowering costs? And when the prices become more even in terms of uh, payment parity across the continuum, more and more payers and patients are going to be looking at those quality measures. And it's going to be really hard to pivot if you've had traditionally a very high cost structure. So I'm, I'm really interested, Travis, in just understanding where Mary Washington Health Alliance is, in your journey to prepare yourself for this inevitable shift to health value as a physician led physician governed clinically integrated network that was founded in 2013. Can you walk our listeners through your value-based care journey over those last six or seven years from your start in the MSSP to becoming a next gen ACO and then also participating in the bundle payment BBCI program?
2: Sure, Eric. No, it's, it's, truly been a journey just as you've characterized it and it continues to be a journey with the ever changing landscape so when we set out to pursue a formal partnership with our community physicians you know we wanted to start by improving the overall quality and health as well as the cost of healthcare for our greater Fredericksburg community. That vision, initially, we wanted the timing to be at the right time. We didn't want to be too early. We didn't want to be too late. But at the end of the day, we wanted to create a true partnership with our physicians. And just as you've characterized it as a journey, we started as a joint venture. Physicians wanted to buy into this clinically integrated network and create real value by not just dabbling in this or, or having a foot in each canoe, but really be vested in this joint venture. And so we started in that model, but, you know, as the government has created different value-based contracts over time, we've had to evolve as well. So we've had to be flexible. And so with that flexibility, we kind of dissolve the joint venture. And Mary Washington Healthcare is continued to be that sole equity owner. And really the purpose of that is when we transitioned from the Medicare Shared Savings Program, where it was upside only with no risk, you really had to adapt to take that institutional risk. And even CMMI indicated that they didn't want to put a lot of the independent practices at risk individually through our joint venture model. And so we weren't designed to participate in those programs. And so when we initially applied, we got denied and we got great feedback from them. And so we pivoted and we used that flexibility to change our structure. Mary Washington, as, as the, the sole equity owner and the, the staple in our community, took that risk. And our independent community of physicians, which were about 75% independent, 25% employed, gave us that availability to participate in the next gen program. So we started in NextGen in 2018 and transitioned from MSSP. We, we currently were in the, the BPCI model, but we also, when we started in MSSP way back in 2015, we had a whole diversity of value-based contracts, both commercial and governmental. So population health to us, not only was the, the timing important, the flexibility was important, but also the learning capability of being able to participate in all these programs So we knew that we had to get to a critical mass that impacted our providers so that we could change the behavior in which they provided the current fee-for-service landscape and transition to that value-based world. And that's why I love the name of this podcast, That Race to Value, because it really started way back when, when we were just getting into the ACO world, when Don Berwick was at one of the advocate seminars or one of the, the mainstream clinical integration seminars And he said the worst position that we could be in in population health was kind of static. You know, when you've created a a value-based world, yet you're still in a fee-for-service world, that that transition needs to be fast. It needs to be quick. And you need to, to race to that value. And unfortunately, it feels like we have stalled a little bit. And with the change in administration, it does feel a little bit like we're, We're trying to pivot back and forth between both canoes, depending on which contract you're negotiating. So it's kind of a mouthful of an intro, but we're very excited at where we're at. We're excited as to how we've performed and excited for the road ahead.
0: Travis, it seems the health system-led ACLs are inherently disadvantaged in this environment where most revenue is still generated in fee-for-service, where you've got that canoe that still requires your foot in it and Hospitals leading in value must contend with this demand destruction of their fee-for-service lines of business if they reduce admissions and emergency department visits and procedures. And since the majority of savings come from keeping patients out of their doors, making the hospital bear the loss seems like a CIN needs to focus on increasing market share and then preventing leakage from the system. So if the value that's generated is used to drive more patients in the network, It would seem that a CIN would be able to decrease cost of care and create new value based revenue streams. So, let's talk about this dichotomy that's faced by the health system balancing risk based payment with fee for service. And and the question is how can a health system effectively execute on its value agenda to build a sustainable financial model? You know, what are the critical strategies that are necessary to establish this organization? Cultural, being value-minded. What are the strategies that you've put into play to address this?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and there, there has to be that synergy, right? There's got to be bottom-up, top-down at every level and acceptance of population health in that value-driven world. At the end of the day, even in participating, which many systems do, probably the, the 500 ACOs in, in the governmental programs across the U.S., you know, we're just dipping their toe in. And when you look at what critical mass that makes up with regards to their total population of patients they see, typically you see these, these surveys coming in at maybe one, two, three percent of their overall volume of revenue and the grand scheme of things, it's, it's really not that much, but yet you still hear from CMS as they, they drive these value-based value driven contracts you know they're touting 25 50% of their their beneficiaries are in some type of a value-based program it's still small right but at the end of the day you need to understand that we're still learning and i think the best learning environment is to do that in a shared environment so we have brought our independent physicians along and our goal is not to employ our community of physicians but how can we partner with them and how can we create these synergies and one of the, the main brands for that is through value-based care. This population health initiative is real for us. That's why we've got so many programs to try to create that critical mass. And it's not through demand destruction for us, but it's that triple aim, which is doing the right, right care at the right time in the right location. We add in for the right cost, you know, with the right providers. So it is a adopted methodology, but it, it's a tough culture knowing how much of the revenue stream is still based in that fee-for-service world. It is still paddling against the stream, against the current, but with all these programs that are coming out, we feel as though we're still learning as to how to adapt. And I feel as though the more of these programs that we learn from, every time they change a program, and I think we can all kind of smirk and put air quotes, change. It's like, change is inevitable, right? These programs you used to be able to sign up for and you, you put your hat in the ring and you're good for three years because you know what's, what's going to happen year after year. It's pretty static. But now these programs change almost quarterly. If not, they change without notice. The onset of the pandemic reserved the right for CMS to really pull the strings on all the contracts. So you need to be able to learn and adapt and understand how these work. And I actually feel for the systems, the, the providers, the hospital entities that are not participating, that are kind of riding this out to the end, the fee-for-service boat to the end with the stream, it's, it's going to be a quick drop-off for them unless they learn and adapt.
1: So Travis, you've been leading value-based care at Mary Washington Health Alliance for quite some time. And with your experience in leading clinically integrated care, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that can improve care outcomes. The economic and functional integration that has occurred through mergers and acquisitions often gets more attention. However, what really matters is whether it's resulting in better value of care for patients. And clinical integration seems to be one of the most important and greatest challenges of our industry. For example, the New England Journal of Medicine found that the average Medicare patient saw a median of two primary care physicians and five specialist physicians per year. And that's the median. I mean, as it is estimated, upwards of 75% of healthcare expenditures are consumed in the care of chronic conditions. And the care for these individuals tends to be fragmented across multiple providers and specialties. Clinical integration certainly provides a solid foundation for health value because it can enhance communication between providers and constrain the resulting excessive costs from uncoordinated care. So Travis, in your career, how have you seen CINs leading in the transition to value-based payment by improving care coordination, quality, and efficiency across a patient's continuum of care? And where do clinically integrated networks fit in the maze of ACOs and PCMHs and PHOs and IPAs? How does that all work?
2: I think the the CIN is really the parent. It's the parent company. It's, it's the organization that really drives the change through the data. And you see this culmination of AI or information or it's claims-based data, whether it's coming out of the EHRs or the hospital data, all of that information is so key and crucial to driving change, driving performance. That's really where a clinically integrated network, a true clinically integrated network, separates itself from these small initiatives that seem to be siloed. So any of those acronyms that you picked on that compare against a CIN, and and this is why we've created what we've created is it's through the healthcare system across all specialties. So it's not specific to a, you know, and this is where I'll criticize CMMI a little bit, the silos of the oncology care model or the ESRD model or the next-gen model, which seems to, as you've indicated earlier, Dan, the, the primary care folks, an in independent space can impact change a lot more when they do this independent of a system. When you come together and bring all that data together and all the resources together, that's truly where we impact change for our community and get that data transparently across the network in everybody's hands. So I think we're starting to see that evolve. We're starting to see that in the the Firebase technology. And I think as we start to see the data becoming more and more prevalent and readable and available and not so isolated or proprietary, system analytics are going to become that much more profound. At the end of the day, we are just as much consumer driven as any other line of industry. It's just, we refer to our consumers as patients and they may not need us until they actually need us versus wanting us. But when we have the data and we have the analytics and we understand the type of care that's needed, we can really look at where we can do better and where we can improve. Because at the end of the day, you know, everybody wants to be A-rated. Everybody wants to be a five in Prescani. Everybody wants that positive performance that we do provide good care. And it's, it's understanding how you can reflect how you provide the care. For us, clinical integration means so much more than just our value-based contracts. When we adopt that philosophy, we treat all of our patients with the same care that we would treat our clinically integrated members that are attributed to us. So I guess that's a, a very philosophical answer to your question and not much detail, but I think as we go through this podcast, we'll, we'll break it down a little further.
0: Let's start with breaking down the, the idea of your partnerships with payers and employers. We know it takes a village to make value-based care work, and CINs are often successful because of These partnerships that enable a larger scope of ACO activities to customers with a bigger footprint in a region where all of the entities could be equal partners at the table and make joint decisions, perform clinical integration activities and work together on their pathways. And one of the more important partnerships in a CIN is this one with payers and employers, since all parties can jointly work together to encourage participants to be more accountable for improving their health. And payers have tried for years to develop methods of care management or disease management, oftentimes with limited results. And employers, particularly self-insured employers, are now demanding that things be done differently in regards to their healthcare spending. So a clinically integrated network could be a basis for providers and hospitals to develop ways to work more closely with participants and really address the desires of payers and employers. Can you tell our listeners how your ACO approaches these partnerships and how that collaboration leads to best practices for value-based care? What is Mary Washington Health Alliance doing in collaboration with the paired community and large employers?
2: For us, that's it's a unique question. And I think just like with every clinically integrated network in ACO, when you see one, you've only seen one. And everybody operates differently because care is provided locally. It's the one thing that is very challenging to commoditize is, is care and, and how you care for your community. And that, that's obviously what we're trying to change through through population health. But for us, with the commercial side of the world, we have, just like many folks that are in population health, just about every flavor, value-based contract. But what we do, I feel as though that not many are doing, and at least many of the commercial plans and, and folks we network with nationally, are not doing is taking advantage of the waivers of being clinically integrated and truly being able to single signature contracts in the commercial world. And I say that because I almost say it cautiously, but it's it's not cautious. It's all out there, the Stark and antitrust, anti-kickback, all the concerns around clinically integrated networks, leveraging their capabilities and the FTC hates that word leveraging just because they don't want folks negotiating these types of contracts in a way that they're they're diminishing the overall networking power if you will in a community. So, you know, at the end of the day, we understand that the market needs competitive environments and we do this in a partnership with the payers so that it's a it's a win-win-win. The patient win is there, the provider win is there, and and ultimately the payer needs to win as well so that we can provide care at an affordable cost. So, in these value based contracts as well as fee for service contracts, we contract as one single entity. And so, we're afforded that opportunity because we're deemed clinically integrated. We work in the population health environment. And so, through these contracts, When we sign a contract, not only are our providers who may be able to leverage the fact that they're a sole specialty, or maybe they're a larger group, or maybe somebody could get a a better rate, they surrender that to our network and we effectively negotiate one contracted rate. So what this specialty gets is what that specialty get, and it's across the board both e and and procedurally. So that's an advantage both to us and the payer, and at the end of the day, to the patient, because they're getting a better price, a better cost for their care, as opposed to contracts all over the place. Also, with that value-based contract component tied to the fee-for-service component, we need to perform well in both. And what that means is If you have an overinflated fee-for-service world, you're never going to perform favorably in the value-based contract world. However, as we've indicated, there's not much of a critical mass in those value-based contracts of attributed lives to where you can truly impact the overall care in the community. And because there's so many components of the shared savings, and I'll put air quotes around the shared component that even though you prove you're providing costs at a lower cost compared to the market, there's strings tied to that. Meaning you need to perform both in quality, in cost, and there's always components that are shaved out of the actual true cost. So it's very challenging financially to put the embedded resources that are needed both analytically, clinically, as well as drive behavior change and still be able to incent providers to change and adapt. So, I guess the the long answer to this is we've adapted with both fee-for-service methodologies as well as value-based methodologies. At the end of the day, sometimes we win in one versus the other. It's, it's challenging to be in this environment while, as Don Berwick said, we're kind of stalled and you need to transition to one or the other. We feel as though we're still learning from both environments and trying to survive at the same time. I think that's the best we can do in this this current challenging landscape.
1: Travis, I'm really interested in how your ACO has been able to integrate specialists into your value-based care strategy. From what I understand, Mary Washington Health Alliance has been in the bundled payments for a care improvement or a BPCI initiative for quite some time. And I, and I think back to how ACOs were originally envisioned by Elliot Fisher well over a decade ago. and he saw ACOs really being in, in the idealized state, virtual networks of physicians that include specialists and surgeons. And Fisher and his colleagues estimated that for every 100 beds in a hospital, 88 physicians are usually involved in managing episodes of care. And of those 88, only 30 are primary care physicians. However, when we look across the ACO landscape in the country, most ACOs are formed by groups of primary care physicians instead of having multi-specialty groups. So I'd really love to understand, Travis, a little bit more about what your ACO is doing here to integrate specialists. Can you provide our listeners with an overview of your health care organization and how it's organizing around various clinically defined episodes of care? to more directly align financial incentives with improved efficiency and better care outcomes?
2: That is probably one of the most challenging questions because when we sought out in clinical integration, we wanted to be inclusive uh, with the entire network of providers. And so we knew from the beginning that a lot of the, the work and effort will be done by the primary care community, but we always said, how do we continue to engage the specialists in these value-based initiatives, in the Medicare initiatives, and bring them along as part of the journey. Through the diversification of all the contracts that we have, whether it be commercial, governmental, or direct employer, those, those contracts can be specific to diabetic care with the endocrinologist or diabetic eye exams with the ophthalmologist. Through the BPCI program, we've got multiple engagements at every level of many of the episodes. Because as you know, when BPCI came out initially, there were 48 episodes of care. And we went all in in all 48 episodes. So back then, 2015, you rarely had any conveners doing that as a system or a CIN. Many of those conveners were large firms that were contracting with entities like us. But we did this independent. So We had the ability to engage a lot of our specialists around that. And as I said earlier, the data is really what drove our outcomes, you know, and I guess for the most part drove the level of engagement, because when you have that type of data at so many, I mean, we're a network of 500 providers, we're a three to one ratio of specialists to primary care. And, And so it's how do we engage so many specialists? And it's really through the data. I mean, we provide quarterly cue cards. We call them cue cards, but they're, I guess, more performance driven than quality, but the performance drives quality outcomes. And so we can show at every provider level, their performance against their peers within their provider group, as well as within their specialty. And then we take that specialty and we compare it to the network. So depending on the metrics that we choose, and they change routinely based on what our quality committee comes up with, right now we're we're focusing on hypertension and the cardiologist specifically, those are the type of initiatives that allow us to continue to drive, change, and engage these specialties. We've also created what's called a Q program. It's Q-U-E, quality utilization and efficiency. And that's where we engage a lot of our our specialty groups around internal cost-saving initiatives. So for orthopedics, think the hardware and the internal negotiations with vendors in that space. You know, at the end of the day, physicians really don't know or even care how much the hardware costs. And so those vendors pretty much own that market if they pick a specific vendor and can dictate the price. Whereas if you have the physician sitting on your side of the table with you negotiating those prices down as far as you can and sharing in those savings, those are some of the waivers that CMS affords you to do those internal cost savings initiatives. So we've done that in the orthopedic world, the cardiology world, neurosurgery in the spine world as well. We've got other waiver initiatives where we access APPs, Advanced Practitioners, on the the Surgical Advanced Practitioner Program. So in that program, they actually round with the surgeons through the hospital post-op discharge, making sure that they get that clean discharge care and, and the continuity of care is provided. And that expense is borne by us to help with the surgeons so that they're not rounding on so many multiple patients that are coming through the system. So it closes the loop there. At the end of the day, the specialist community, I think, through some of the most recent changes in the the QPP initiatives and that 5% APM bonus, it seems to be as though they're inadvertently carving out the specialist participation because of what it takes to be qualified as an alternative payment model for physicians based on the cost or number of patients. And I think that's a mistake. I think we need to continue to include specialists as part of the ACO network because that's what we are. We're an organization of all specialties, not just primary care. I will say, kind of in closing, the specialists pay attention to how they perform because at the end of the day, we share their report cards with the primary care community. So, where do those referrals of patients come from? But from the primary care docs. And when there's multiple specialty groups, they want to refer to some of the best performing specialty groups that have low admission rates or low readmission rates. They're seeing their patients post acute care. They're not going to a sniff or an IRF. And so they understand population health and how we work cohesively as a team. And it needs to continue in that synergy really as a, a team-based approach. I'll end there with we are probably on the other side of many of the ACOs where we've got almost 40 specialties in our ACO, but they're just as much a part of the ACO as our primary care community and continue to be engaged.
0: Travis, I'm really excited by your explanation. You know, we talk to a lot of ACOs that are struggling with the inclusivity of specialists and not really having a strong strategic plan for how to include them, but understanding the necessity of it. And I want to pursue this a little further with you and talk about the independent component. So as we think about making value-based care the new normal in our healthcare industry, it's going to require hospitals, health systems, payers, all of these entities to change behaviors and overcome their previous bias and challenges and become more engaged and contribute to the development of these new payment models and and taking on additional financial risks. And and a major strategy for that is incentivizing physicians and involving them in the creation of these shared savings plans. And so in your leadership of the organization, I'm curious to how you involve physicians in the compensation strategy and how compensation is a part of keeping their buy-in or gaining their buy-in. And and beyond just the incentives for cost savings and quality, you know, does your ACO have good citizenship within its uh, compensation formula to ensure provider engagement? And as we think about your ACO, you're in the highest risk ACO program, you're in BPCI advanced, you're moving into the MSSP advanced track. This is really a bold agenda with, as you say, 75, 80% of your providers being independent. You know, what are the strategies that you use to keep them aligned with the health system?
2: I think just like we started this conversation, it's been a journey and talking about compensation and incentivization has been a journey as well and evolved over time. It's safe to say many when they they sought out which program they're going to participate with and in, in CMS and CMMI have been open with this. If you are awarded savings in a program you get a, an influx of, and this is funny, CMS and CMMI don't call you. All their contracted entities that they've contracted out all the surveys and pick a vendor or a firm that is is reaching out to you on behalf of CMS or CMMI wants to understand how you obtain savings. And they culminate that together and they provide a, a summary report. And at the end of the day, it's every network has been different. You can't put your thumb on how they achieve savings. It may be arbitrage, it may be methodology, it may be location. We kind of look at it as a marathon. If you've ever run a marathon and you started off at a 10 minute mile, well, it's pretty easy to get down to maybe a 9.30 or a nine minute mile. And so you may not be a network that's been performing favorably. But if you're like us, and in years past, you've been performing at a six and a half minute mile, and now you need to perform better and get to a 6.15 or a six minute mile, well, man, that's It's hard to squeeze any efficiencies out of a well-efficient, organized machine. And so you really look to inclusivity and synergies and you really have to have a well-oiled machine. And so at the end of the day, each network performs differently. We have learned from participating in these programs. And when we started off, that incentive payment was almost, and I'll say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, socialistic. We needed to distribute a portion of the savings Equally and equitably. So we had to cover our our costs internal, which were small. We're a small operation team that's lean and effective, but we've got an analytics arm. We have a care coordination arm, and and certainly our leadership and governance that goes into this. We stipend our physicians to participate both in the board as well as our committee meetings, and so it's the physicians that determine how much we should retain and how much we should give out. And that's evolved over time, but I'll say fast forwarding to today, my advice I would give to newly formed ACOs is make them activity-based incentives. And when I say that, I mean the physicians or the entities that are actually performing something that you're requesting whether it's quality initiatives, whether it's annual wellness visits, whether it's action-based initiatives, it's got to be activity-based because you've got to get some sort of return on your investment that impacts change. Risk is so important, but we call it appropriate acuity, accurate acuity. And so if patient's acuity is is diagnosed and accurate and it was there years prior and it changes over time, well, that needs to change accordingly with that. And so we provide activity-based incentives at the primary care level as well as the specialty level. And we've even further adapted in-home assessments this year. So instead of looking for that annual meeting that you kind of learn by going to these seminars, you host a, an annual meeting once a year. And at that annual meeting, you get attendance, you know, by having people show up and get their checks. Well, it was getting a little concerning when people who, let's take a specialist in our network, for example, may not even touch many of the, uh, the attributed lives, but yet they're getting a payment that's equal to somebody that managed and, you know, had to work their tail off for a number of quality initiatives. And it just, it wasn't equitable, But it only made sense to do it equally because you didn't want to disadvantage others over other specialties. So obviously we've evolved over time and we no longer do the annual payments and we still get those non-engaged specialists that are reaching out saying, hey, I didn't get a check this year. Where's my check? And it's like, well, we don't do, we've stopped doing that for years now. You need to actually see our members, do something with our members and create positive impact and positive change. So we've been doing that for the last two years now, and we probably have the highest level of engagement for those physicians that are engaged to now we've created to what you referred to as good citizenship. We've evolved that over time to really our participation criteria. Physicians need to provide quality and value data that demonstrates support for improving the health of the population, increasing the quality of care, and enhancing our patient experience in a cost-effective manner. I say that like it's right in front of me, but it's we say that so many times. That's really what our, our physicians need to do. And at some point, we're going to do what is probably most challenging, is have our physicians really consider remediation with some practices and possibly just eliminating others that are not engaged. So we've really come to that mature level of a network. Well,
1: Travis, in thinking about getting a return on investment, I think about all these ACOs out there. There's still quite a few that still are not generating savings. And, you know, just thinking about the enormous expense that's required in investing in IT and infrastructure and different capabilities such as care management, you're often faced with a losing proposition. And so I'm just thinking as health systems now are, employing more physicians and own more community-based sites of service, such as ambulatory surgery centers and clinics. It's a reality that decreased fee-for-service revenue is going to have a direct impact on the system's top and bottom line. So I'd like to understand how your organization is approaching capital allocation decisions from both a fiduciary responsibility, but also with the, a population imperative to make key investments in programs, staffing, technology, and clinical interventions that can truly make a difference in the health outcomes of the community that you serve. Can you describe how your organization prioritizes investment to build an operational and care coordination infrastructure to support integrated care with improved healthcare outcomes? And then how do you balance the need for reinvestment of shared savings back into the CIN with the need to put money in the hands of those physicians?
2: We continuously invest time, and time is the one commodity that you can lose over time with your network, and that's you need to continuously nurture those relationships. And so we spend time and engage our physicians. The capital infrastructure, the CIN, is not that great. We've got, you know, as we said, about 70,000 lives, 500 physicians we employ about 18 full-time employees. We've got a full-time medical director, myself, and then arms of analytics and care coordinators, and the care coordinators are not embedded into practices. However, they do have to round, and they're much more effective by managing multiple practices, so they're not a specific entity of a practice that can tell them what to do and and when to do it. And they act independently empowering the practices. In 2018, Mary Washington Healthcare invested in Epic. And so we transitioned to that EMR as a a big bang approach. A big focus of, of that was Healthy Planet and the capabilities of the data, the integration, uh, the interfaces, and taking that a step further through the ACO, approving access to a waiver in which we can subsidize Epic Connect. And I think everybody knows if, if they've worked with independent practices, EPIC is a very costly EMR transition, and so we've agreed to invest in our independent physicians, so both independent participants alike are qualified for this subsidy, and so that gets us access to a lot of the seamless information and interfaces needed versus Right now, our, our chart abstractors or a physical team that sit here in our shop are probably the most well-versed in 18 different EMRs currently. And they've got remote connectivity, mining charts and, and chart notes and doing what we do best, which is reflect how we're performing via quality. And it's so challenging when you've got such a diverse makeup of EMRs. So transitioning as an organization, that was a significant investment. And on top of that, we're doubling down and we're we're working with the studio group and care logistics over this past year to really refine our processes. So although you can put a a system in place, and that's the spine and brain, if you will, you really got to get those motor skills working on the processes. That's where the pseudo group and care logistics is helping us really refine that process. And as we disseminate that out to the practices with a consistent message around our population health initiatives, it's really helping us perform favorably. Now, granted, we may put things in place that we feel will fix a problem, but I think we can all agree that the rules of engagement within each of the contracts change year over year. So although we may have performed favorably in MSSP, as soon as we switched to Next Gen in 2018, it's a different methodology. It's a different world. It's prospective attribution. We did perform favorably, but then CMMI rebaseline and they rebased all the contracts and they changed how you do risk adjustment, and so. You know, we took a financial hit in 2019 where we performed unfavorably. We would have performed unfavorably this year as well. But for us, it's the cost of doing business and engaging our our physician counterparts. We know there's an upside 5% bonus in the alternative payment model world. And so we don't see that. That goes directly to our physicians as a level of engagement from CMS. We continue to work alongside them. And for us, this is a long-term play. I think also with shared savings initiatives, that diminishes over time. The return on investment over time continues to diminish, and there's a direct corollary there to, as you see savings, it gets harder and harder year over year. So we've transitioned to getting closer to the premium dollar by, in 2019, we stood up a Medicare Advantage product. So for us, it doesn't compete with our value-based initiatives or our, our next gen program, it actually aligns very favorably in which you see additional synergies in what we've learned from MSSP and NextGen. We've incorporated very favorably into our Medicare Advantage program. And so that's how we continue to be successful and evolve.
0: Travis, I want to stay on the topic of the technology that you've been discussing and Epic being a part of that and As we think about CINs, beyond clinical efficiencies and integrated delivery, it seems that providers can really benefit from participating in a CIN because of this sophistication of enterprise-level technology and infrastructure that's put in place. We know that providers are already really frustrated with the continued increase of administrative tasks unrelated to patient care, unfunded mandates through regulation, endless data reporting, and clicks in in an EMR that don't directly lead to improved patient care. However, providers in a CIN theoretically should experience higher professional satisfaction if clinical integration can provide data that's useful to improve the patient care and minimize meaningless clicks and gaps in patient information. So for your independent providers out there participating in the ACO, how do you deliver longitudinal patient records to them? And are your providers having a better caregiving experience by participating in the CIN by having a shared EMR? And Are, are there CINs out there that truly have the level of clinical interoperability to tie the system together across a continuum of organized care delivery?
2: I sit here looking up, kind of smirking a little bit, if you can see my face. I think we would all like that. We all feel like that's the, the mom and pop uh, apple pie family story. But at the end of the day, the uptick Of It is not as great as we anticipated to be kind of knocking down the doors. What's the capacity and level of integration that we can intake? Can we do 50 practices a quarter? What are the resources and and time intensiveness needed in education and so forth? And I'll say that we've got maybe five practices that have taken advantage of that waiver and we continue to work with the practices. I think we've just evolved over time to accept the diversity that you're never going to have a vanilla flavor of practices because they are independent businesses. And so just like Epic is a great EMR vendor, I think as the technology continues to change, folks that use that data and can make it actionable will be a good partner. And so Epic will provide sources of data to us but they're not the single source of truth for us. We've got actually four different vendors we work with in order to create actionable data and engage our providers. So we've got a vendor for BPCI, we've got a vendor for next gen quality reporting. And when I say vendor it's it's really a commoditized back office process for us in which we're the, the muscle to get the work done, but we need something that really translates the information for us and is a true partner. And we, we've had one partner for our claims-based data that, that really helps translate a lot of our cue cards and ingests the majority of our, our claims-based data. So although we've been on Epic since 2018, we still have not transitioned over to a, a single source solution for us. So I think, I think just like we have commoditized our vendors that make sense for us, there's never going to be one vendor that we'll work with that will meet all of our needs. And I hope that is a big takeaway for every ACO. It's like, don't struggle year after year trying to force the network into a square hole when you're round. Work with what you've got and work with what works best, but continue to engage the practices because just as you said, the... The practices don't want to take on another administrative duty or or something that you're asking that really just doesn't relay down the road to better improved care or better quality for the patient, unless you can prove that to them. We've been very effective with, I said earlier, our activity-based incentives and think there's a mutual return in that, meaning not only am I incenting the provider to do something that's challenging or administratively task-heavy but there's a reward from them, financial from us, but also from the service or duty that they're providing. So think annual wellness visit. They compensate roughly 170 to $180, depending on there's there's two codes. And yet primary cares nationally maybe do 25% at AWVs. Transition care management codes, they pay $170, $200, depending on the number of chronic conditions, I think if it's greater than seven conditions seen within seven days or 14 days, there's a difference in reimbursement level. That's significant reimbursement for primary care providers who are already seeing these patients post-discharge. It's just a matter of training them on the documentation in which they know how to perform and bill effectively. So when we say we want more of these done, and I'll give you a great success story, AWVs, we were in the the 15 to 20% range when we started and we said, man, if we could get our docs to do this on our attributed lives to a level in which they're documenting, our quality is going to go up. A lot of the HEDIS metrics, a lot of the preventative care is a requirement that CMS has identified and CMS pays the practice and enhanced fee as well. So we said, we're going to put a, use our waivers, be able to access the primary care community, give them all the PDF information out there on AWVs on how to bill and what to do, standardize the script, the the paper, the, whatever they need in their EMR. And today, three years later, we're over 65% compliance with our attributed lives. So for us, I mean, we did a podcast with CMMI on that because they wanted to know how we did it. And it was through that synergy of activity-based care. This last year, we, we did the same thing with advanced care planning, ACP codes and TCMs. And we've seen a threefold increase in ACPs. ACPs is a 17 minutes, which, oh my gosh, who can spend 17 minutes billing an ACP code? Well, if done effectively, it's a conversation that should be had with these beneficiaries. And at the end of the day, they're paid for that. And we provide an activity-based incentive on top of that as well. It's a matter of changing behavior, but also leading them across the desert to the water to know that it's really fruitful for them to listen. And when we show these types of rewards for them, I think the administrative part gets buried behind the actual reward that comes out of it. It's good for the doc. It's good for the patient. And at the end of the day, it helps us in our participation and and all the criteria to prove that we're successful.
1: Hey, Travis, you mentioned earlier you have a, also a new Medicare Advantage plan. I'd love to learn more about that. You know, how is the launch of the Mary Washington Medicare Advantage plan going so far? And you know, what is the outlook? Do you expect this new plan will increase the percent of beneficiaries who choose Medicare Advantage in your particular market? And also, um, how does this plan differ from other MA plans? And as I understand, also, you're partnered with Lumeris on this. Be interested if you could share a little bit more about that partnership as well.
2: Yeah, we really started that journey back in 2017 and, and looking at what's going on in the MA space. There's a lot of focus, a lot of similarities between what we're doing in the Medicare space and what could be uh, successful in the Medicare Advantage space. And so we wanted to learn more about that. There was a lot of early Him and Hein, like, look, we're we're a healthcare delivery system, we're not an insurance company. But at the end of the day, who knows how healthcare should be delivered better but the healthcare delivery system. And if we understood the insurance side, which there's the four-letter word that always scares everybody out of this space, which is risk. Well, we're not fearful of risk. In fact, if you're educated and can understand what level of risk and a proactive manner that you go into this, you can do it in a, a very sound way. And so, We begin to educate ourselves in 2017 on who's in this space and who's in the provider-sponsored healthcare or provider-sponsored health plan space, who does this well, and Essence Health out of St. Louis, Missouri, they've got about 70,000 lives. They do this very effectively. They do this very well. Their their physicians are very engaged. And who partners with them to help them with this? And, And that's where Lumaris came from. We learned this through going through an RFP process. We spoke to many, many provider-sponsored plans that are out there looking to to grow their own plans, but really when it came down to what we were looking for is when we looked at our community and we looked at the opportunities in Medicare Advantage, we wanted to own this. We didn't want to just administer this or just be another bolt-on caboose to value-based contracting, make it another one of our diversified platforms We said, we want to own this plan and our brand means something in our community. So we called this Mary Washington Medicare Advantage. We bolted it on to what the community trusts and knows, and that's Mary Washington Healthcare. And we chose a very responsible partner in this that's not just an administrative service provider. It's not a TPA. They're a true partner in this as well. We own the license. They work with us to understand how to administer the plan. But also, it's a true partnership in, in how they work with Essence out of Missouri. We stood this up in 2019 formally and went through the, the CMS process and network adequacy. And through our single signature that we have in our ACO, we met all of the adequacy requirements, which is a very exhaustive process when you go through this. You need 90 plus percent adequacy in every specialty in order to meet it. So it's a a very strenuous test to go through. You need to go through a benefit plan design, which as a new plan, when you're launching, you get access to everybody that's currently available in your market. So you kind of understand the competition. And in that first year, it's public. So everybody knows that we're coming to market. And what we don't know is how competitive everybody will get when we plan to launch. So We knew we had to be competitive. So we put again our money where our mouth was, and we invested in this as a long-term venture and a long-term play. And we created a very rich benefit plan design. So not only did we have to invest heavily in creating a license, creating the infrastructure, having a partner in place to work with us on this, but we had to create a very competitive, rich plan that compete with the nationals that are in our market. So we do have the Kaisers, the Humanas, the Aetnas, the Anthems. And when we came to market, we immediately, out of the top five, became the second largest MA plan in our market. It's not saying much when you know the numbers, because this is also one of the reasons we did it, is when you look nationally at Medicare Advantage from a market penetration perspective, nationally it's about 35 38%. And in our market, we were sitting at about 10 to 12%. So from that experience, we knew essentially from the beginning, we've got a large room to grow here. And it's not just competing against the other Medicare Advantage plans because they hadn't figured it out, but it's educating our Medicare beneficiaries in the community from straight Medicare or from a Medicare supplement or from an employer group health plan. It's not just the other Medicare Advantage plans we're competing with it, but it's, it's really educating the community on what Medicare Advantage is. And so we feel from a long-term perspective, you know, when we launched our plan during the annual enrollment period for 2019, we got 1,500 lives, which may not seem like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but that's tremendous growth for a first-year startup plan with you know, less than 100 primary care providers. Fast forward to 2020 when we launched the first year of our Medicare Advantage plan, but why not complicate things during a national pandemic? And so we had the opportunity to launch a Medicare Advantage plan during a pandemic, continue to be successful and look to be this the source of education and healthcare for our community throughout this time and we had a 96% re-enrollment this year through annual enrollment, and we gained another 800 lives in 2020. So we are super excited in the position we currently have in Medicare Advantage and really look to grow that plan over time in Synergy.
0: Travis, as you've been talking, something that really stands out to me about your success and your, your ability to thrive is adaptability. And as we think about care becoming more virtual and procedures shifting more and more away from hospitals into an ambulatory setting, I can really see the hospital of the future being asset light. In this model, the focus would be on providing higher levels of emergency medical and surgical care, but with a capacity weighted toward more intensive patient management. So the acute care facility would be supported by a network of connected and expanded ambulatory resources Uh, like op surgery, pack services, home care, all enabled by remote monitoring technology, perhaps. So in this advent of clinical integration with more of an emphasis on ambulatory care and really consumerism, how do you see the role of the hospital changing where it's no longer at the pinnacle care, but instead a provider on the continuum? And how are you guys planning for that?
2: It's a great question because I think we're seeing it happen literally in reality, right in front of our eyes throughout this pandemic. So I think as as many communities have seen an uptick in in, uh, telemedicine and telehealth, just about everything from which we felt was never going to occur, which was pent up demand throughout the pandemic has occurred. But the one thing that hasn't come back is that ED volume. And really that's that's the gateway to hospitalization and hospital care and hospital-driven services. But in the outpatient and ambulatory space, we've seen a tremendous uptick in that continued trust in, in you know, folks that are seeking care need care we created a in-home assessment opportunity within our Medicare Advantage plan in which we've got local providers providing that point of care to the beneficiaries that throughout the pandemic may have been concerned about coming to a provider's office or going to the hospital or even going to the emergency room. And vendors that have been in that space in years past have seen, you know, maybe a 20 to 25 percent level of engagement when reaching out to beneficiaries. Well, we were in the 40% range from a level of engagement, which means, you know, twofold. One, they trust us. And two, they really need care because we saw a much higher level of acuity. And so I I agree with you, Dan, that the outreach and the tentacles and the, the kind of hub and spoke mentality needs to continue we need to diversify our care portfolio we need to continue to stay true to the system that we've created but also create a trust and expansion around the level of specialties and care that's needed in the community so you know when we look at our our post acute care partners they've been challenged throughout this pandemic they've been challenged with value based care and really what part can they play or what role do they play in this? And we've helped them with that. We've helped them with providing the transparent data, how they can be better partners. They don't need to keep members in their house or in their, their care for 27 days on average. They can, they can release them and when they can be released and there's a care delivery path for them to get a new patient that's coming in because as we all know, the post-acute care side is, is only continuing to grow. The age of beneficiaries is growing, they're, they're living longer, they're living healthier lifestyles. So the, that post-acute care side, whether it be the IRF, the, the skilled nursing facility, we're not in that space as far as owning those systems. But as I said earlier, we don't want to own all the systems and all the level of care in our community and realize and recognize that there's, there's experts in those fields. But we do want a mechanism in which we can partner with them. And so it's through our ACO, it's through our alliance that we create these these partnerships. We've got preferred relationships in the post-acute care space. We're also finding niches through our provider-sponsored health plan and Medicare Advantage that there's partnerships with dentists, there's partnerships with chiropractors, with acupuncture, all these other realms that are important and are a component of healthcare that we never really focused on before that we're creating great relationships. I think as much as we continue to evolve, and you know, we've got a three-part philosophy: it's timing, flexibility, and learning. And it's it's that learning one that allows us to really adapt.
1: Well, Travis, you are an accomplished leader in value-based care, and I think under your leadership, Mary Washington Health Alliance will win this race to value. As we conclude our interview today. I thought a great way to wrap up our conversation would just be for you to share your personal leadership philosophy. Can you provide our listeners with some of the core principles or values that drive you as a leader in value-based care?
2: I think it's it's just like the CMMI arm, innovation is a component of that. I always say, you know, stay true and, and remain innovative, stay hungry, never be satisfied, build trust through transparency, and continue to engage your partners. And our partners in healthcare are so broad it's it's the community it's the churches it's the post acute care providers it's the healthcare delivery system the physicians we're finding through the pandemic it's the department of health it's the area district for aging it's the the behavioral health behavioral health is becoming such a component in the healthcare delivery arm that you need to build those relationships but at the end of the day it's leadership is built on relationships and and that's what we do in the alliance so for us in our community, the ACO has really been that vehicle to build trust and create relationships. I would just urge anyone that is starting an ACO or in an ACO or, or maybe in a, a strategy team building session that the level of engagement around trust and transparency and, and building those relationships is such a crucial component that you can't do it through acquisition. You can't do it monetarily, although it does help. You need to really get in front of them. And, and in this uh, environment, you can do it through Zoom. You can do it through Teams. We've got multiple modes of communication that are effective, but just really focus on that. And that's how you build the trust. And once you've gained that trust, cultivate that over time, because it's through time that you continue to evolve together, whether they're independent or employed, and and. I feel we've really broken our stride and, and really broke out of the, the learning phase, but continue to learn and evolve. I hope this podcast really helps others through that Race to Value because I think it is a, it's a race and you, you need to continue to train to, to be effective.
1: Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. So excited and honored to have you share your experiences in this Race to Value.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Dan. Uh, It's been a great experience and certainly a lot of great folks that have come through this this podcast channel and, and we're all learning together.